so good to be with my church family today. You know, if we're honest, when we begin to tell an unbeliever or someone who is unchurched or agnostic, indifferent, whatever the case may be, about the Christian life, this, this life that we have willingly came, come into to pursue after the causes of Christ, if we're honest, as we describe it to them, it sounds a little bit crazy. It sounds a little bit crazy. If we were to take all that we've been walking through in the book of Matthew over these last three years and we were to summarize the entirety of what we've learned in the book of Matthew about the life of being one of Jesus' disciples, we could summarize everything in two sentences. That you should leave everything to follow after Jesus and you should be happy about it. That you should leave everything to follow after Jesus and you should be happy about it. Now that sounds crazy. That sounds crazy. We can look over the course of church history. As a matter of fact, we can even look at today and the life of the church today and the persecution of the church today. And if we're honest, we can see clearly that there is suffering involved with following after Jesus. That there is hardship involved with following after Jesus. Many of you this morning, you know and you have incurred personal costs, costs in relationships, costs in ambition, costs in your life for following after Jesus with all of your hearts. That's not the part that sounds crazy. The part that sounds crazy is having incurred those, those, those costs, having borne those burdens that you would endeavor to be happy about it. That you would endeavor to be happy about laying down your life for the cause of following after Jesus. This is exactly what James says. In his book, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's crazy, y'all. That's crazy. When you incur hardship, when you face sorrow, when there is difficulty in your life for following Jesus, count it as joy. Count it as privilege. Count it as opportunity. This morning, I want to ask the question, how is that? How is that? How is it that we can live a life that sounds that abnormal? How is it that we would willingly want to follow after a Jesus that says it's going to cost us everything. We're going to lay down our lives on his cross and that at the same time we can count it all as joy. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to finish up chapter 19 today. Finish up chapter 19 by looking at the final four verses there. The final four verses what we see today is, is kind of a, a continuation of what Aaron preached last week. It's, it's a, a follow-up by the disciples on the story of, or on the encounter that Jesus and his disciples have had with the rich young ruler. As the disciples have listened in, they've thought, wait a second, we have a question about this. We've got some things we need to talk about and we need to figure out, all right? So that's exactly what we're going to have the opportunity to do is to listen in on this follow-up conversation to the, uh, to the encounter that they had with the rich young ruler. Would you stand with me in the honor of reading God's word as we read these verses together? So it's Matthew 19. We're going to begin in verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, 
Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or land, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant and all-sufficient word. You may be seated. So when we come to our text this morning, Peter asks a very honest and I think vitally important question. They've been, they've just witnessed what happened with the rich young ruler. And if you'll think back to what that encounter uh, entailed, it was a rich young man who had seemingly his entire life together. He had sought out to live out the word of God, probably in a pharisaical time kind of word, so much so that he said boldly, audaciously to Jesus that I do in fact love the Lord my God with all of my heart, all of my mind, and all of my strength. And so Jesus, looking back at this rich young ruler, had said, well, one thing then you lack. Go and sell all that you have and come and follow me. And the Bible tells us that this rich young man went away for he had great wealth and he did not place his faith in Jesus and he did not accept the difficult teachings that Jesus had taught. And so having heard this encounter, having listened in on what Jesus has said, the ears of the disciples are perked up. You see, the disciples had done just what Jesus had instructed the rich young ruler to do. The disciples had left behind their families often for months, perhaps even a year at a time. When Jesus had called them, they were there with their fishing boats and their nets and taking care of their business and they had dropped exactly what they were doing. Matthew had abandoned his tax booth at a moment's notice to go where Jesus was calling them to go, to go and to fish for men. And they had faced hardship. They had faced difficulty. They had been away from their families. They had often had no place to sleep or to go. They had slept without a roof over their heads. People had heard about what they were doing and they were being criticized. These were men, these were ordinary men, not accustomed to public criticism. And yet now they were in the public's eye with everybody pointing their finger and wagging their tongue and trying to figure out exactly what this movement was all about. And these men are headed to the cross, remember? They have left Galilee, gone into Judea, and are on the path to Jerusalem. They are headed to the place in which Jesus will ultimately die a brutal death on a rugged cross and upon which they will accept the mission that will lead every single one of them to martyrdom. So the costs have been high and the costs are getting higher. And so you can imagine as they've heard Jesus explain to this rich young ruler, yet again their minds go to, is this worth it? And so they look to Jesus and they say, Jesus, what then will there be for us? What then will there be for us? For those of us who have carried our crosses, for those of us who have taken for your, your mission as our own, for those of us that have been mocked and criticized in the public eye. For those of us who have left behind family and who are mocked by our parents and mocked by our friends. What then will there be for us? They're asking a very important question. 
In fact, they're asking the question that each one of us must come to grips with this morning. They're asking the question that each one of us must have some understanding and some answer to. And the way that we answer this question will determine how it is that we live our lives. Is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth the sorrow? Is Jesus worth the inconvenience? Is Jesus worth the awkwardness? Is Jesus worth the sneers? Is Jesus worth the fractured relationships? Is Jesus worth sleepless nights as you worry about those in your church family? Is Jesus worth the cost of the mission that he has laid before his church? See, there are some this morning, perhaps teenagers, and it's your desire to live a life and to indulge your curiosity and to indulge the rebellious spirit that is in you. And as a child, you said, I want Jesus. I love Jesus. I want to follow after Jesus. But as the hormones kicked in, as the life got real, as the desire to, to blend in with the rest of the crowd at school and on the football team and in the band came, came about, what you decided is I'm just going to put that down for now. I'm going to put that down and maybe I'll come back when I'm 25. Maybe I'll come back when I'm 30. Maybe I'll come back when I get married. But the truth is, is what you've already decided in your heart is that Jesus isn't worth those costs. Perhaps there's a college student. As a, as a teenager in the youth group, you were the one leading the charge and raising your hands in praise. And now if I were to go and talk to your sorority sisters or your fraternity brothers and I were to ask them whether or not you were, to, were a Christian, they'd probably say, I think so, maybe, perhaps. Because it became more important to you to have the typical college experience than to follow after Jesus. In other words, you deemed that the costs weren't worth it. Jesus wasn't worth it. There are young mamas and young daddies and young marriages in here today and you already have a life that is far too busy and far too cluttered and far too unsure about far too many other things and what you are trying to decide is Jesus worth adding something else to my life. Not just adding something else to my life but literally taking my entire life. Is Jesus worth the cost of my family and the time and the investment and the training and all of those things? Is Jesus worth it? There are retirees and you've gotten to the golden years and man, you're ready to coast. You're ready to coast to the finish line. You're ready to, to back down on your commitment. You're ready to back down on your faithfulness. You're ready to back down on your work. And the question that's facing you this morning, is Jesus worth your golden years? Is Jesus worth your golden years? You see, brothers and sisters, the radical nature, the seriousness with which we live the Christian life will be directly proportional to how worth, worthy we believe Jesus is of our lives. And the way that we answer this question, the way that we determine the worth of Christ and the costs of Christ and the glory of Christ and the treasure of Christ and the kindness of Christ, the way that we understand that and take hold of it and then take hold of us will literally determine the way we make all of our decisions, the way that we build our families, the way that we lead our lives, the way that we pursue our ambitions, the way we go about education, the way we do everything. So the question that Peter is asking is an important one. 
The question in front of us this morning is an important one. Is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth the cost? One of the things that I appreciate about Jesus is that from the very beginning, he has always told his disciples to count the costs. He has never been ambivalent. He has never been ambiguous. He has never been unclear. He has never in the, in the least not told them directly what to expect. He told them, when you come and you follow me, you're gonna have to count the cost because there are going to be nights in which you don't have a pillow to lay down your head. And so we have Jesus' disciples on this day, those that have done it, those that have heard Jesus speak. Now they're just in the beginning stages of suffering. They're just in the beginning stages of, of taking on this mission. But Jesus had asked them to count the costs and they had counted them. They had decided to get in the boat with Jesus. They had decided to cast their lots with Christ. They had decided that Jesus was worth whatever would come. And so it's important, I think, here to know that Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter for the question. I point that out because there's a lot of debate among Bible commentators as to the purity of Peter's motive here. So, so the, the, the thinking is, is you really kind of fall into one of two camps, or one of three camps, actually. So camp one, Peter is living like a mercenary, and so he's like, Jesus, as long as you pay me well, as long as you pay me well, then I will go and do what you asked me to do, because that's what a mercenary does, a paid soldier. So like, you, you pay me well, I'll go where you, so, so in their mind's eye, this is all a selfish motive behind Peter, which I dismiss because Peter is not rebuked. The, the other camp is that Peter is asking this because Peter is, is genuinely wanting to live a life of faith and he is wanting to know exactly what to expect so that he can put his faith in the words of Jesus. That's the camp that I fall into. I'll explain more in a second. And then there's a middle road where people are like, well, Peter probably had an impure motive, but it ended up being used for a good and glorious gain. So it's, it's kind of like right in the middle, not all bad, not all good, but it's kind of right there in the middle. And so the question that the commentators have, and perhaps the question that many of you have, is, is it selfish to live a costly life now for Jesus in expectation of a life of inconceivable prosperity in eternity? Is it selfish to live my life now by looking at the rewards that are to come later? Is it selfish for me to do the things that Christ has called me to do now with my mind thinking later on, I'm going to be rewarded for this, even though there is sorrow and pain and difficulty in the now? And I am convinced, brothers and sisters, that the answer to that question is a resounding no. That it is not selfish to place your faith in a future hope. That it is not selfish for you to place your faith in the promises of Christ. Because all that shows is demonstrable, proven, concrete confidence in the sufficiency of Christ Jesus himself. All that shows is that when Jesus says it, you can take it to the bank. Frequently as Jesus is motivating his disciples and calling his disciples to suffer and calling his disciples to hardship and calling his disciples to difficulty, he keeps saying, but look to the future prize. Look to the day that is to come. Look to the glory that is to be revealed. As a matter of fact, I think this is what Paul does. This is what Paul does. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says this, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
In other words, yes, it's hard right now. Yes, I may be shipwrecked or robbed. I may be imprisoned and executed. The head may be lopped off my shoulders, but my sufferings are not worth comparing to my future glory. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus tells us to count the cost, but we shouldn't just count the cost. As we count the cost, we are at the very same time to count the rewards. To count the rewards. To realize that though we may do without right now, we are going into an age of utter and ultimate prosperity that we are to enjoy for all future glory. That we are going to go and to be with Christ and never again to be separated from Christ and that we will receive his inheritance secured by his cross and assured to us by his resurrection. Brothers and sisters, this is nothing else than to put your faith in the gospel. To put your hope in what Christ has said. This is the good news. That you can be delivered from hell, assured that your penalty wiped away, and at the very same time, assured that this isn't as good as it gets. That Jesus Christ is coming back and Jesus Christ is making all things new. And so as much as heavy as the burden is on you now, as deep as the sorrows are for you now, as painful as your child's rebellion is right now, as difficult as your financial situation is right now, as, as, as earth shattering and sleepless as your life becomes, you can stand firm because the promises of Christ Jesus will be certain and sure. So have confidence in them, brothers and sisters. Matter of fact, I think this is exactly what Jesus does is count the rewards for his disciples. Having them them talking, and this is really the first time in the disciples' lives that we've heard them acknowledge cost, right? Jesus in verse 29 kind of comes back to that and he, he summarizes so much of what he says in Matthew chapter 10, if you'll remember. Verse 29 says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold. You'll remember back in chapter 10 that Jesus had told his disciples that, you know, some of you, your mom's going to turn on you and your dad's going to turn on you. Some of you are going to have your children turn on you. Some of you are going to lose friends over this. Some of you, it's going to cost you the most significant earthly relationships that you have. But the one who endures until the end, he will be saved. And so Jesus is here very real uh, explaining to the disciples the nature of their cost. But at the same time, he is saying, my brothers, my brothers who will be martyred, my brothers who left everything, my brothers who are following after me count the rewards. And so Jesus doesn't respond with rebuke. In fact, I believe that Jesus responds right here with the, with the most detailed explanation of our, our eternal reward in Christ of any place that we've seen in the first 19 chapters of Matthew. As the disciples get more into the nitty gritty of their ministry, as they march more and more toward Jerusalem and Golgotha, we're going to see in the weeks ahead that Jesus is going to speak even more explicitly about the age to come. Jesus is going to speak even more explicitly about the reward that is going to be offered to his disciples. So I think there's at least three rewards that we see here that Jesus counts out for his disciples. The first reward that we see is that you will have eternal life in the new world. You will have eternal life in the new world. So the word new there can actually be translated as the word regenerate. 
okay? Now, when we talk about salvation, here's the way, this is a word that we often use to talk about the saved man's heart. The way that we would describe is that our hearts are dirty and broken. In fact, we are dead in our trespasses. So our hearts are dead in our bodies, cold to the things of God, cold to the glory of God, not wanting Him, not desiring Him, not seeking Him, as Romans 3 says. But what the Spirit of God does in us is the Spirit regenerates our heart. In other words, the Spirit gives us a renewed heart, an alive heart, a, a beating heart, a heart that, that loves God, a heart that aches for God, a heart that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. So that which is broken, that which is dead, that which is decaying, that which has no representation of God himself at all goes away and it is replaced with something that is totally new, that is made in the image of God, beating for him, pounding for him, loving loving him and bringing glory to him. This is the way Jesus explains what's going to happen when he returns. Jesus explains that what's going to happen when he returns is that this world that is filled with brokenness, this world that is filled with sadness, this world that is filled with anxiety and insomnia, this world in which you fear your diagnosis and cancer and chemo, this world in which babies are left hungry and, and, and the elderly are neglected. All of this is going to go away. All of this is going to become regenerate. It is going to be made new. It is going to be given to a new world, made into a new world, a new earth, a new heaven with a new Jerusalem that is perfectly in, uh, that perfectly brings glory to God himself. That it is going to be everything that God ever intended for it to be and that it is going to be so eternally. This is an eternal life and an eternal world and an eternal pleasure and an eternal glory. As we think about the new world, I think it's helpful for us to think of it as the new world being a greater Eden. Being a greater Eden. You know, the creation was given to Eden, uh, was given in, in Genesis 1 and 2 in the Garden of Eden, and the Lord God said that it was good. He said that it was right. It was there that the heavens were proclaiming the glories of God perfectly, without, without filter, without mask. But of course we know that in Genesis chapter 3, the creation falls and Eden falls, and it has fallen from its former glory into something that is only representative of what once was. But as good as Eden was, the new creation will be far greater. The new world will be far greater. You see, in Eden, man was created morally neutral. He had the capacity to do great good, and he had the capacity to do great evil. And we know the choice that man made. But in the new heaven, but in the new earth, in the new world, there will not be the capacity for wickedness, only the capacity for righteousness purchased by Jesus, credited to us, made in us totally as we receive our glorified bodies in a glorified nature, in a glorified state. You see, in Eden, as good as Eden was, had no concept of grace, had no concept of mercy. The very songs that we sing would have made no sense in Eden. The things that we love most about God wouldn't have even been conceived of in Eden because there was no need for grace. There was no need for mercy. But in the new world, gathered around the throne of Jesus, we will sing with all of the creatures that are there, worthy is the lamb who was slain. In Eden, there was no tears. There was no sorrow. There was no pain. But there was the potential for it. 
In the new heaven, in the new earth, in the new creation, in the new world, not only will there not be tears, not only will there not be sorrow, not only will there not be pain, not only will there not be cancer, not only will there not be sorrow, but there will be no potential for it. No potential for it. In Eden, man had relationship with God. He could talk to God and God would talk to him and there was no division between God and his image bearer until sin had come. But in the new heaven, in the new earth, in the new creation, in the new world, not only will man rest with God, but God, man will rest with God and enjoy God and delight God in all of his splendor, in all of his majesty, in all of his glory forever, forever. Not only is it the greater Eden, but it is going to have a greater Jerusalem. It is going to have a greater Jerusalem. Revelation 21 speaks of there being a new Jerusalem in the new heaven and the new earth. You know, in the old Jerusalem, in all of its glory, at the peak of its height, it would have been a spectacle to see. But the truth of the matter is, is that in the old Jerusalem, the walls crumbled down and the temple burned. But in the new Jerusalem, my brothers and my sisters, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There will be no threat against it that will come and make it fall. In the Jerusalem of the Old Testament, the temple was there and behind the curtain of the Holy of the Holies manifest the very presence and holiness and glory of God. But it was contained. It was, it was held together only behind the curtain. But in the new Jerusalem, the manifold glory and presence of God will permeate every corner of the creation so that you will bask in it and reflect it with the glow of your own face. In the old Jerusalem, it was one nation and one race with one language proclaiming the glories of Christ, proclaiming the glories of God, but in the new Jerusalem, it will be a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation gathered around the table will be people of every color and every ethnicity. And by the way, brothers and sisters, that's why we must decry the things such as Charlottesville, where there's some people saying that one race is greater than another. At the king's table, at Jesus' throne, there will be people of all nations saying, worthy is the one, worthy is the lamb who was slain. As glorious as it is, I wish I could begin to describe it to you. I wish I could begin to explain it to you. But the glory of it all is you're gonna be there. You're gonna be there, church. You're gonna be there. Right now, you're weary. You don't even know how tomorrow's gonna happen. You don't even know how this afternoon's gonna happen. Stop looking at it. Because one day, you're gonna be in the new Eden. You're gonna be in the greater Jerusalem. You're gonna be in the new world. It is the very place that the Lord Jesus has gone to prepare for you and I. And we are intended from there before the foundations of the earth to go and to enjoy it and to delight in it and to rest in it for all of eternity. You're gonna be there, church. Count the rewards. Count the rewards. The second reward that we see is that we're gonna reign with Christ. We're gonna reign with Christ. He says that in, uh, in verse 20, 
uh, 28, he says, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now think about this. This is literally the creator of all of the universe. Everything that has been made is his idea. He owns it all. By his grace, you have been made new. By his grace, you who were once enemies of God are now friends of God. You have been reconciled with him perfectly, totally, ultimately, forever. From his throne, the Bible teaches us that he will reign and he will pass judgment. And before his throne, every tribe, every tongue, every king, every emperor, every president will bow down and they will declare that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is King. The very greatest part of the new creation, the very greatest part of the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem is that Jesus reigns there and Jesus reigns perfectly there and Jesus lives there and exists there and you get to be with him. But it gets better. Like if that's all I told you about Jesus and I told you you got to go to the new world and I told you that Jesus was going to be there and Jesus was going to reign over all the creation, you would say, brother, sign me up. Let's go. That is amazing. How kind is my God. But brothers and sisters, he gets kinder than that. By his grace, he doesn't just bring you into the kingdom of heaven as peasants. He doesn't just bring you into the kingdom of heaven as, as mere servants at the, at the floor of heaven. We don't even deserve the edge of that. But he brings you into heaven as co-rulers, as co-judges, as those that get to share in his eternal and rightful birthright and inheritance. So he tells them that they're going to sit on 12 thrones. And they're going to rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. But we know if we read throughout the Old Testament or the New Testament that he's not just talking to the original 12. He's talking about all of his disciples. 1 Corinthians 6.2, he says the saints will judge the world. In Ephesians 2.6, he says that we will be seated with him in the heavenly places. That you and I, in the eternal kingdom of God himself, by the grace of Christ and the provision of Christ, will rule with Christ. We will pass judgment over the earth. We will rule over the new world and the new earth and the new creation. We will rule with Christ. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. By using the, the, the Son of Man language, Jesus is pointing us back to this Old Testament prophecy. This Old Testament prophecy that foresaw not just the, the suffering servant as being Messiah, but the risen, resurrected, ruling Lord being the Messiah. In Daniel chapter 7, the great prophet of, says, in, at the, in beginning in verse 13, he says, I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he, became to the, and he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, I want you to think about this, y'all. Let's get excited about this for a second. 
I want y'all to think about this. All right, so he says that, that, that the Son of Man, that's, that's Jesus, goes before the Ancient of Days, that's the throne of the Father, in preparation for the work that's going to be done. And there are going to be people that are there from, from every tribe and every tongue and every nation that they might serve him. Now, y'all, we don't deserve to serve with him. But what Jesus tells us is you're not just going to serve me. You're going to rule with me. You're going to stand with me. You're going to judge with me. You're going to rule and judge with equity and justice and kindness and mercy. You are going to be used by God to reign with ultimate and final dominion over all of the creation. So brothers and sisters, do not fret of your momentary hardships and your momentary pain and your momentary heartache because you don't live for now. In Christ Jesus, you have been made more than a conqueror, a ruler, enjoying his inheritance and joining with him in his dominion. So you don't have to live for right now. You know, Aaron said something profound this week in our staff meeting. He says, because we aren't living for the now, we can truly live in the now. Because we aren't living for the now, we can truly live in the now. If we go back, we talk about how crazy it sounds that we would leave everything to follow after, follow after Jesus and be happy about it. It's only crazy if you think now is all that there is. It's only crazy if you think this world is as good as it gets. It's only crazy if you think this is what you have to maximize, if this is what you have to enjoy most. But Jesus is teaching us that the disciples' life may be difficult and it may even be sorrowful, but it is never miserable. It is never miserable. That we can have joy and we can have happiness and we can live a life that is fun and we can live a life that is adventurous and we can live a life that gives us stories to tell and memories to make and photos to put up. We can live that life because we know that if it ends today, to die is gain. I'm going somewhere greater. I'm going somewhere better. So now I can live my life to the fullest this day because I'm not afraid about tomorrow. I'm not afraid of next year. I'm not afraid of 10 years from now. If Jesus comes, Jesus comes. If Jesus takes me, Jesus takes me. If I'm here, I'm here. But what I know is I am going to be a ruler with Christ. I am a co-heir in his kingdom. So let me live my life to the fullness of joy in Christ right now. Stop being miserable, church. Stop being miserable, church. You have the birthright of Christ Jesus promised to you. The third reward that we see is that you will receive a hundredfold. You will receive a hundredfold. Jesus, again, is not shy about the costs. He speaks in verse 29 explicitly about the nature of those costs, costs that the disciples had already realized, this cost that the disciples are going to know to even greater extent in the days ahead. But Jesus looks back to them and he says, but you will never know what it is like to live your life in deficit. You may pay some costs and you may incur some debts and you may incur, or not some debts, but you may incur some difficulties, but you will never outsuffer the promises of heaven. You will never outsuffer the provisions of heaven that perhaps you will know sorrow, but in the glory of Christ, you will know greater joy. Perhaps you will know what it is like to fear a diagnosis, but in Christ, you will know greater courage. 
Perhaps there will be days in which you don't know how you're going to make ends meet. But in Christ, you will know that for all of eternity, you are perfectly provided for. That whatever it costs you now, these costs are only a little while. And you are going to receive back a hundredfold, manyfold, greater than anything that you have ever incurred here. I wrote it like this. Jesus says, following me is going to cost you. It may cost you your mom or your dad. It may cost your children to turn on you. It may mean that you will go to work every day at a place where people are unwilling to be your friend because of me. It may mean that you don't make much money or as much as you could. It may mean that your house isn't nice or your car isn't new. It may mean that you're excluded from the parties at school or that others mock you. It's going to cost you, but only a little. You see, whatever you lose for my name's sake, you will receive back a hundredfold. You will never outsuffer my generosity. You'll never experience the sorrow that I can't overcome with joy. The blessings of God will always be far greater than whatever you lose. See, here's the, here's the deal about the Christian life. We talk a lot about costs. We talk a lot about sacrifice. And we're gonna continue to talk about those things. But in the ultimate sense, in the eternal sense, in the forever sense, the Christian life is decisively unsacrificial. For it is not a sacrifice to give up that which you cannot keep, to keep that which you cannot lose. It is not a sacrifice to give up measly paper now to receive back the eternal transcendent blessings of God forever. It is not sacrificial to give up this creation that is melting away, this life that is wrought with brokenness, to receive back a creation that will never fade away and a crown of glory that cannot be taken from you. It may hurt for a little while. And the grief is not pretend grief, it's real grief. And the pain is not pretend pain, it's real pain. But in the ultimate sense, it is no sacrifice because the Lord Jesus has already pledged to us and our confidence is in his pledge. Our confidence is in his promise that whatever costs we incur a hundred times, infinitely so for all of eternity, we will receive back his kindness. Jesus sums up everything that he says in verse 30 by saying, but many who are first will be last and the last first. You see, to Jesus' disciples, it would have looked as though the rich young ruler had the blessings of God. The way their whole worldview and, and, and religious system would have functioned would have been that the one who was wealthy, the one who didn't have sorrow, the one who had the land and the cattle and the house, that was the one that had not sinned against God. That was the one that had the blessing of God. And so the disciples look at the rich young ruler and they look at the homeless savior and they wonder, have we really picked it right? Have we really picked it right? Because in the world's eyes, it looked as though Jesus and his disciples were finishing last and the rich young ruler was finishing first. But what Jesus is teaching his disciples and what Jesus is teaching you and I is that we cannot trust what our eyes are telling us. We must put our faith, our confidence, our trust, our hope in what the Lord Jesus himself is telling us. And so brothers and sisters, I wonder about you. Are you living your life for what your eyes can see? 
Are you living your life for what your eyes can love? Are you living your life trying to be first in a way that, way that your eyes can understand? Because Paul says it like this, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? For if we hope for what we do not see, we will wait for it with patience. Brothers and sisters, will you live as a man or a woman of faith, placing all of your hope in the promises of God, abstract as they may seem, distant as they may feel, that they are the irrevocable promise of God to you, assured by the resurrection of Christ Jesus himself. You see, if you do, you can leave everything to follow Jesus and you can be happy about it. Let's pray together.